a small group of doctors approached me and came to me and said, we just want to follow you around and see what you do. And I was like, I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I actually had the first doctor sat on over 70 intake calls with me with patients before he felt comfortable taking the first patient himself. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. I'm Alana Goldberg. And I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman. Welcome to the Cannabis Enigma. So for today's episode, I spoke with Mara Gordon. Wait, is she the one from the Netflix documentary? What was it called? Weed the People? Yeah, that's the one. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen, go and watch it. Preferably not on the train, which is what I did. And then I ended up crying on the train and it was really embarrassing. But very moving documentary. Worth watching. So anyway... Mara's a really interesting player in the cannabis industry with a totally unique path. And I got to say, I was really excited before this interview. Okay. Well, now I'm excited too, but what, what's her story? So Mara was a process engineer by profession. She was actually already retired um, when she got into the cannabis industry. And she kind of took this love and respect that she has for data into her work in the industry. Um, she started out creating cannabis extracts for seriously ill patients in California in her own kitchen. And that later kind of led to her founding Aunt Zelda's and Zelda Therapeutics. Zelda, like the video game? I mean, sure. <laughs> um, as well as uh, creating cannabis extracts for seriously ill patients, what this company does today, which I think is really interesting, is that it has a software tool that helps doctors build therapeutic protocols for cannabis treatment. And, and this is informed by the data that these companies have collected from thousands of patients. Um, and of course, this all started with, with Mara's own experience, which we talked about in this interview as well. Well, I can't wait to hear that part. And also the data sounds fascinating. Yeah. But I always find it really interesting that so many of the people behind big change in the medical cannabis industry and world are oftentimes non-medical folks and are driven a lot of the time by their own experience, either as patients or family members of patients. Yeah, totally. Everyone's got a story. Well, let's listen to Mara's. Let's do it. Hi, Mara. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So let's uh, go back to the beginning. Tell us uh, how you got into the industry. Why cannabis? Um, I got in as a, a patient both for myself and for my husband. Uh, back in those days, there was really no uh, lab-tested medicine at the dispensaries. They just had flour and homemade brownies and things like that, and there were really no options. And so I'm a process engineer, so I approached this as science, and I was like, if somebody has to be able to figure out a way to know how much of each cannabinoid and the terpene in the, in the profile so that we can have a consistent medicine. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing it myself. And what were you treating, if you don't mind me asking? Well, my, my husband, in his case, he was having a posterior anterior um, fusion. So it's very, very complicated spinal surgery. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been a uh, serious chronic pain patient, um, plus some other issues, after having spinal meningitis back in 1996. Okay. And so I had been on 
over 26 pharmaceuticals, including fentanyl um, and you name it. And um, I had gotten off of all of them because they don't really help with chronic pain. They're good for acute. So I was searching also for something for myself. Um, the one important point in addition to this is my husband has now been sober for 31 years. And so it wasn't, it was obviously much less back when we started, but he was not willing to risk his sobriety to have the surgery. He said he would rather have become a cripple and be in a wheelchair than to risk it. So cannabis was kind of a, a you know, a Hail Mary hoping that it worked and it did. And how did it turn into a career? I don't see it as a career. <laughs> I see it as what I do every day. Um, I was happily retired. I mean, I wasn't happily in pain, but I was, I was done, I thought. And um, it, it's one of those things that when people started seeing what was happening with us, they started asking us to make medicine for them and then for their family members. And then, uh, then I started treating cancer patients and I've treated, oh, I don't even know how many thousands of cancer patients at this point, but you know, cancer patients talk to other cancer patients in waiting rooms. And so I would treat a cancer patient. And the next thing I know, six or 10 more cancer patients would be calling and saying, you help so-and-so, please help me or help my daughter, help my baby. And, um, I don't know how to say no, you know, to, to helping and being of service to somebody. I mean, it's like, no, I couldn't, there's no way. So, uh, I just, kept working. And then it became to the point where we couldn't do it all ourselves. And so then I brought in uh, a nurse and then doctors and lab directors and trained them in our methodologies mm -hmm. and expanded uh, exponentially from there, you know, started clin doing clinical trials through Zelda Therapeutics and all the other things I've done. Can you tell us a bit about that uh, doctor's education? How does that process work? Well, Initially, when the first, you know, I, I started training nurses and then, you know, I, I love nurses. They're wonderful. Thank God we have them. I don't think that it's the right mentality necessarily for setting a dosage with patients because nurses tend to be, oh, they're going to hate me for this, but nurses tend to be uh, more accustomed to following instructions and not taking, not going outside of that because there'd be terrible repercussions to their careers if they did. Now you have nurse practitioners and physician's assistants and things like that, that are a different category, but I'm talking an average uh, licensed vocational nurse or RN. Um, they're just not the same mindset for understanding. They don't have the same kind of coursework in the physiology and pharmacokinetics and things like that. So I, when I realized this and I switched to doctors, um, I actually uh, went and spoke to the Society of Cannabis Clinicians initially, and a, uh, a small group of doctors approached me and came to me and said, we just want to follow you around and see what you do. And I was like, I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I actually had the first doctor sat on over 70 intake calls with me with patients before he felt comfortable taking the first patient himself. Mm -hmm. And then he started training some of the other doctors. And I occasionally still obviously do some, but the whole idea was to always make it medical professionals doing this and not me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, do, do you come up against any backlash in the process from the medical community or, or uh, elsewhere? Uh, absolutely. Um, there have been many, many doctors who have been um, um, uh, 
derogatory towards what I do. And, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, when somebody bashes someone, they're bashing them, saying something about themselves more than they are. You know, what's the, what are they afraid of? Right. Because I've made it clear in there's a lot of videos out there that people have posted of my talks. And I make one thing very, very clear always. And that is that I am not a doctor. And I believe that this should be doctors should be the one uh, making the recommendations. Mm -hmm. All I'm doing is collecting the data. Now, what you do with it is up to you. You know, I know how to collect data. I know how to analyze data. I know how to make incredibly good medicine. But you have to be the one managing your patient's care to determine whether what they're taking is going to have interactions with their other um, uh, medications or, you know, what their comorbidities, that sort of thing. Granted, I built a software platform that supports all the data that the doctors use, mm -hmm. but they don't all use it and they don't all use it continuously or whatever. And, and some of them incorporate pieces of it into their existing, their own software. Mm -hmm. um, but what's important at the end of the day is that they have a starting point for knowing where to start so that one of the earlier speakers today talked about five milligrams per kilogram. Mm -hmm. That's true in an age range between, you know, maybe zero and three, mm -hmm. right? But what if your patient is 10 or 20 or 30? What if your patient has these comorbidities, all those things? So I've built all that in as a starting point for doctors. And then their work keeps making the data smarter. Um, I think one of the things that's, uh, that really stands out with cannabis medicine as opposed to uh, the more like traditional um, medicine is that so much of the information actually lies with the patients rather than with the institutions. And so this data um, that you have is, is so much more important. Um, what have you found out uh, along the way that's, that's been surprising to you um, from the data that you've gathered? Well, I think just to the point I made before, I think the thing that initially was so surprising is the lack of correlation between the weight of the patient and the dose. That was that was shocking. I because I would you'd see some big giant guy and make the assumption that this person is going to need enormous amounts, and they might be a lightweight. You know, or I hate to use the pejorative, but they might be. And then you'd meet some scrappy young woman or old woman. And she would, what she would be using would have me flat on the floor, you know, and that there is none. The idea that there's a difference in the aging is such a huge thing because when I get, when I work with a, a pediatric cancer patient, which is probably what I'm, though it's not what the most of what I do is the most I'm known for, mm -hmm. for various reasons, um, that I would tell that dose to the parents and they'd be like, what? And then I had one instance where a parent decided to try it for herself. She goes, I can't give this to my child. And I'm like, number one, you're not six. And number two, you don't have stage four glioblastoma multiforme. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be the same. And to get people to understand that it's as you get older, you need less for where uh, allopathic pharmaceuticals have the lower doses for the younger patients. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that a pediatric patient would actually lower their dose as they get older? That's exactly what that means. As they get older, the dose would likely go down. You can talk to, um, you know, longtime cannabis users that have been using it for 30, 40 years, and they'll tell you, I can't use anything like what I used to use. Now, they aren't just talking because it's stronger, because it's still about the milligrams. If it's stronger, it doesn't mean that you have to get higher. It just means that you have to smoke less or take less or whatever. It's just, it's, it's just math. 
Um, but oftentimes these older patients or these older individuals will say that they're shocked at how they just don't have the capacity anymore. It's the same thing with alcohol, though. It's the same thing with a lot of things that as you age, you just I mean, I have a glass of wine now and I'm done. I used to be able to have, you know, would go and have a bottle of wine before we went out as a as a starter. I can relate to this. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I can't even imagine doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And what about conditions? Um, has, the, has the data that you've gathered helped you um, understand what sort of product to prescribe to someone depending on their condition and obviously age and other factors as well? Yes, we have actually, because we have full lab results on every batch that's been done since 2000, early 2011. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of data on a lot of patients and a lot of products. Right. We're able to say, okay, when I'm doing a creating a report or looking to do some um, statistical analysis in our data, I can look at it and say, okay, based upon the lab results associated with this, uh, it's called ICD-10 code. It's the codes that are used for billing insurance companies, Mm -hmm. but it's also the way that I've been collecting the data so that when somebody has a particular type of cancer, we're specifically going to be uh, tracking data around that same diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? Because people say to me, as an example, they'll say I have breast cancer. Well, there's so many different types of breast cancer mm-hmm. and they're all treated differently. So we want to get very specific. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so if we can look at that and we could say, okay, we've treated, you know, 150 glioblastoma, for example, multiforme, let's just say GBM. And within this age group, from this, you know, zero to... 10 years old. And of those, they've used this much THC and this much CBD on average. And this is the profile that is found to be over time, the most well tolerated and well accepted and where we've seen the best results. We cannot claim causality by any stretch of the imagination, but we can also back to what I said in my presentation today about uh, compliance and what's required for compliance. If these are the ones that are going to be the most comfortable for the patient. The other thing that I look at is terpenes for the most, they're found in other plant sources. So you look at other plant sources and what their medicinal benefits are. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to select those that have at least well enough understood from me, either from um, uh, Ayurvedic medicine or some other uh, plant medicine herbalist to find mm-hmm. out which other, like for example, lavender, like I talked about, to have that because it has a sedative calming effect, um, not so sedating, but calming more, um, then I'm going to want to have profiles that have more of the linalool. And so as a result, that's what I've been using. Now, I have also tried using ones that have a very different profile. And for certain people where they have, you know, like, let's go back to cancer, but they also have PTSD or ADHD or severe anxiety or, you know, OCD or whatever it is, we can maybe give them something that also has more pinene in it and it'll help to make them more comfortable so they don't have that paranoia that can come with too much sedation. And uh, when you're making the products, are you using single strains or are you mixing strains and adding in the terpenes in order to kind of uh, pull these profiles together? Well, we... um, uh, we never uh, add, okay? We only subtract, okay. all right? right? So does that mean you're taking, uh, l- like I asked before, is it a single strain or are you adding strains together and then uh, right. subtracting? 
Right. We only use a single strain, mm -hmm. except we call them cultivars because a strain yeah. is a bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. So we call them, we use some cultivars. So we'll use a single cultivar. Um, there are certain products that we make uh, where we are mixing two. For example, we have a one-to-one THC-to-CBD ratio product. It has 10 milligrams per milliliter each of THC and CBD. We're using a, um, a particular profile of a hybrid that we're using on the THC side that's pretty consistent. I mean, we've got, when we have a grow now that we find something we want, we buy all of it. And then we have the same genetics and have it grow over and over again. So there's going to be slight variances, but in, in a natural product, there's always slight variances, right? Um, and then on the CBD part of the formulation, we use ACDC. So we are, in that case, we are mixing two to make one product. But I don't mix two different cultivars to make one um, uh, extract or something of a, like, I wouldn't take three or four THC uh, uh, uh uh, flowers and mix them together to mm -hmm. make a particular profile. Um, I would search for, I mean, I'm not against doing that and I've done it in the past. In mm -hmm. fact, in the, in the film that's that we, the people they're showing where I actually had been doing that to create an effect in particular for a woman. That is something that someday in my fantasy world, I have this beautiful store with all, the, you know, have you ever gone into an olive oil store? Of course. Okay. You know, they have all the beautiful and you select and you taste them and you try them and, and then they, you get the ones. I would love to have a similar setup, but where I could take, you know, three parts, you know, banana kush with one part sour diesel and, you know, that are the profiles of those and put them together to create this profile. Um, I believe in doing that. I don't believe in the adding of, of artificial or external terpenes. Um, without exception, I have not seen it done where it was done well. Uh, they tend to add too much. Um, and it, and it's in it, uh, it, people don't feel as good from it. And if people don't feel as good, they're not going to consistently take it. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the the three factors for compliance um, for our listeners that um, you know missed your talk here at the Portugal Medical Cannabis Conference. Can you kind of run over, the, over those quickly? Sure. So I talk about the the um, the comfort, and I talk about the cost, and I talk about the consistency, and those three things being very important to have somebody be compliant. Um, if every, if you take your medicine and don't feel that it's a compulsory thing to do and it doesn't make you feel comfortable, you're not going to comply. You're not going to take it mm -hmm. because it doesn't feel good. Um, so you're not going to do it. The other thing is, oh, I'll tell you a, a personal story very quickly on that. I had, um, I take uh, agaricon mushrooms every day and it gets really expensive because mm -hmm. I take double of what, because if I've had MRSA, so I take quite a lot anyway. So, um, Somebody suggested that I just buy the powder and put it in, you know, a drink or drink it. Well, it was disgusting. And yeah, I could sit there and put it in capsules and do all that, but I'm not going to do that. It's mm -hmm. just not, it's just not, it's not comfortable. It's not within my zone of comfort of how I live my life and how I take my medicine. Right. So I was not complying. So I went back to capsules, even though it's expensive. It's, it's a, it's a luxury worth it for me on, on, um, uh, let's see. 
comfort on, on uh, cost. Cost, obviously, unless it's being covered by the government or by private insurers or whatever, the cost can be extraordinarily prohibitive to for patients. And um, we have to work to get that down. One of the things that I think is so important about understanding dosing is in order to reduce the cost. Because with very, very few exceptions, people are under, excuse me, are overdosing themselves. And I mean overdose, I don't mean, oh, you're going to die and end up in the gutter. I mean, but over what, it, what a therapeutic dose would be. Mm-hmm. So, and because it's so expensive, it doesn't, it's not practical to do that. You wouldn't take, you know, an expensive Saigon cinnamon and be wanting to get a couple of granules it and just take the lid off and open it all over the table and swoosh off into the the trash what you don't need, right? Mm-hmm. Yet people with cannabis, they take far, far more than they need to achieve what their objective is. And then the third thing is, let's see, cost, uh, consistency. So you can be consistent with a whole plant within certain parameters of the fact that, uh, for example, when my curcumin shows up every month, when I get it ordered and it comes, sometimes it's a dark orange, sometimes it's a brownish, sometimes it's a bright orange. It's because it's a slightly different plant. As long as it's having the same effect and it's same basic profile, people are comfortable. And I also think that people do better when there's a slight variance in it, you know, over time than having the exact same thing time and time and time again. Why do you think that is? I think that we build up just a tolerance and we build up a sense where, you know, um, you can still have perhaps some of the therapeutic effects if you're if you're what you're trying to treat is a seizure disorder or if what you're trying to treat is a, a tumor reducing reduction of tumor size but if you're trying to reduce anxiety or PTSD or insomnia and things like that you have to still be able to have that full effect of it um, and not just the underlying effect uh, uh, on the body so it doesn't really seem to matter. I also think that having some disvariances in general is healthier for us. It keeps our immune system stronger. It keeps us having to constantly having to fight this or that. And that's how we build strong bones and bodies, as they say. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a good advice in general. Yeah. I think not only just uh, in terms of cannabis. Yeah. I mean, anything I think about, you know, I, I, Like I said, I've been vegetarian for 48 years now, um, and uh, I eat mostly home-cooked, plant-based, obviously plant-based foods, and it's... uh, there's something about making it's not going to be the same each and every time versus opening a uh, a can of something or a, a, a frozen food where replication and exactly the same is key. There, but there can be a certain tolerance for variances. And yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mara, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good luck with your website. It looks really interesting, and I'll be looking at it and watching you develop it and seeing and sending people there. Thanks very much. With me now is Dr. Roni Sharon, a neurologist and pain specialist practicing in New York and Israel, and the medical director here at Kenigma. Dr. Sharon, we asked you to, to come in today for a little section we're calling Ask the Doctor. While we were recording the previous segment, we actually got a message on one of our Facebook pages asking, can cannabis treat anxiety? Um, so I wanted to ask you, 
Um, we know that that's actually one of the most cited reasons that people do use cannabis. Um, is it effective? Is it something that you prescribe cannabis for? I'm not surprised that people are asking that. I think people come to me asking about anxiety more than anything besides pain, and I'm a pain specialist. Anxiety is incredibly common. It's something we see in a host of other conditions as one of the main symptoms that people experience. And guess what? Cannabis works really, really well for people with anxiety most of the time. Sometimes it actually worsens people's anxiety, and sometimes it depends on the strain and the person. But I've had a lot of success treating chronic pain and other conditions when people have a component of anxiety. That being said, I work in New York, and anxiety is not a condition that I can approve marijuana for. And I have to let down a lot of people because if they don't have a condition that I can approve them for, they've tried medicines for, I cannot approve them for anxiety alone. And what about depression? Um, I imagine it has, has the same uh, problem that it's not an approved condition, but it's something that people do use cannabis for, um, and I think it, it is used to treat it in other, in other places. Yeah, absolutely. Depression and anxiety are separate conditions. They have their own features and their own symptoms. They're different. We treat them with similar medications. I tend to find that marijuana is more helpful for anxiety than depression, but that being said, anecdotally, and according to some research, cannabis has been very, very helpful for depression. Again, this is very important. It's not for everyone. There's treatments for depression. There's non-pharmacological treatments for depression. There's lifestyle changes. Marijuana can be part of the solution. In a more traditional pharmaceutical psychiatric setting, actually some of the same drugs are often used to treat anxiety and depression. How does marijuana work in relation to those from a neurological perspective? Well, marijuana can actually increase the same neurotransmitters that the antidepressants work on. That's one way. Another way is on activities of daily living. Sleep, for instance. Marijuana can help people sleep. And when people get better sleep, symptoms of mood problems like anxiety and depression are significantly improved. One of the things that we hear about and the actual botanical science behind this is a little bit iffy is the difference between indica and sativa. One is said or known, uh, at least anecdotally, to be more of a depressant, puts people in a more relaxed mood, uh, maybe even to sleep, that would be indica, and sativa more of a more energetic um, feeling, and that can actually induce some anxiety, um, at least in some people. Would you have a recommendation there? Is, is there a difference? It's a really great question. I wish that I had a clear answer for you. I think doctors, patients, and everyone in between get confused by the labels of indica and sativa. Uh, what I've found is that very often we'll label things that are more calming and relaxing as indica and the opposite with sativa, but that's not necessarily the case. And marijuana is an incredibly complicated plant. And there's different parts to it. In addition to CBD and THC, there's terpenes and other molecules that can impact people's functioning. And I think those have factors as well that play into how they work on people. The most important thing is to trial and error. What's cool is that there's no harm in trying one thing and then trying another thing. It's just important to, in the beginning, whenever you try something new, and I say this about medications as well, try at a low dose, go up slowly. Do it with people around you that care about you. Try it in the comfort of your own home. 
there shouldn't be a problem. And if somebody does, you know, freak out or have an anxiety attack uh, after trying marijuana? Happens. And that's okay. It passes. The vast majority of time, just allow time to play out and the effects will go away. It's important to start at a low dose. So generally, we don't have that problem. Do it with people around you. They can help out if that happens. But just allowing time to do its part really is the most important thing to do. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Sharon. Great to see you, Mike. I'm Michael Schaefer Omerman. This episode was edited by myself, produced by Alana Goldberg and Matan Whale, and our sound engineer was Yoav Morgan.